We are in week three of our study through the book of Nehemiah. We come to chapter two today. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to join me in Nehemiah chapter two. And today, in our ongoing study in Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes to his really, really big moment as he is now going to approach the king, and he's really going to ask an unthinkable question. He's going to ask for leave to go back to the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the walls that have been down for 141 years. It's a very tense moment. It's a very tender moment. And if you're in the room and you are dialed in with us, my prayer is is that you would see in this text, I would see in this text, both the instruction that it gives to you and I as godly servants, as those who are seeking to serve God. But if you're with us online, we also are grateful you're here, and we pray too that this will be instructive to you where you are serving God where you're at, that it would be inspiring to you as well. And so pray with me, and then we're going to jump in. Father, we bless you. We ask that you would sanctify us this day by your truth. Your word is truth. And I pray, God, as we hear today, and and I labor in this text, and we labor in this text together, and like miners digging for gold, that we would draw out the richness of the revelation of Nehemiah chapter 2. And God, by your Spirit, would you stir my heart Would you stir our hearts to see in the text the Lord Jesus, to see in the text a a normal guy named Nehemiah whom you use to accomplish a great task? Open our eyes, O God, to behold wonderful things in your Word. I thank you, Lord, that you are a healer. And you have given healing to some that are in our midst today watching online. There are others right now that are not here watching online because they're battling sickness right now. And God, we pray that your healing hand would be upon them. And others have come into this place, and while they love you, they've had a bit of a challenging week. And so would you use this text to strengthen their resolve, strengthen their hands to go back out in the week ahead and accomplish your will, the task you've given them to do, with the grace and the power and the provision that you have made to put them where they're at for such a time as this. Help us, Lord, now. Behold your word, and not just be hearers, but doers. We ask it all for the glory of our Lord Jesus. And everybody said, uh, on the left side of your bullets, I hope you grab one, there's an outline there that we're going to work through together. Now, you don't have to read far into Scripture. As you begin in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You don't have to get very far to see that God will meet His servants. God will meet His people in some very surprising places. I think Genesis chapter 12, God meets a man named Abraham, who was from the great city of Ur. Not really. Ur was a place that you would not drive to, but it was a place you would normally drive through. And yet God is going to take this man, Abram, change his name to Abraham, and use him to be a father to many nations. 
And then I think the classic figure, Joseph, Genesis 37 to 50. He's in an Egyptian dungeon. Life is difficult for him. He's constantly getting treated ugly by people that he thought were his friends. Obviously, the the pagans of the world were coming down on him, and yet God uses Joseph to save his people from a famine in Egypt so he could raise up a guy named Moses, ultimately to get them on down the road for Messiah to come one day. I think the book of Judges, you have Gideon, who was a terrified farm worker. That's all he really was, a terrified farm worker. And yet God's going to take Gideon, and he's going to use Gideon to produce peace amongst the entire nation for 40 years. I think in the book of 1 Kings, Elijah, Eden, Elijah, we've been learning about Elijah. Elijah is from Tishbe. We don't even know where that is. And yet he would go on to be the sort of Michael Jordan of the prophets, not the LeBron, the Michael Jordan of the prophets. In the book of Esther, you have Esther who basically wins a beauty pageant. She was a very attractive woman, and God used her beauty to get her before a pagan king, a lot like Nehemiah, and she would go on to be used by God from that really difficult place she was in, and God used that woman, used our sister to save the entire nation. And then we get to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, as we've learned, is a normal guy, and he is in the palace of the king. Two weeks ago, we saw that Nehemiah had been given news that the walls from his brothers that had started to be rebuilt in Ezra chapter 4, that because of the bureaucratic political red tape in the book of Ezra, that stopped, and he heard that those walls are still down. And it caused him to weep and fast. It broke his heart. And he got a passionate pursuit from God to leave the opulence of the palace and go get his hands dirty in the work to bring the walls back to the holy city of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah, after he gets that, he doesn't immediately go to work. We noted in chapter 1 is an entire prayer. His knee-jerk is to go to God in prayer, not to put his overalls and go to work, not to self-medicate, not to, to, to write a big, long, if he could, tweet about how awful life is right now, or get on Facebook and post a big thing and check in somewhere so everyone would realize he's in a hard place. He doesn't do any of that. He prays. It's very instructive to us, very instructive. When God gives you something, your knee-jerk is, should not be go to work. Your knee-jerk should be to pray. And there is this gargantuous prayer that he gives that is very instructive, that if you want to really learn a model prayer, read Nehemiah chapter 1. And I love the way he ends it in verse 11 of chapter 1a. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to your servant. Now, he could have said, to the right-hand man of the king, to a cupbearer, to a trusted individual by the king. But notice he identifies himself as, I'm a servant. I am a servant. Let your ear be attentive, God. I'm not calling on a pedigree or my cloud or what I've done, but I'm simply your servant, and would you hear? And so Nehemiah identifies here as a servant, and what I want to do today, friends, is I want to lift out, very briefly, seven truths that will 
and should mark you and me as a servant of God. Now, we're going to extrapolate from these 20 verses. I know that's a lot for Jordan to preach, 20 verses, but we're going to do it. And I want you to see that there's seven truths from here that are both instructive and inspiring. First of all, I want you to notice God's servant waiting, waiting. The patience of Nehemiah is very challenging to me. The patience of Nehemiah is very challenging to me. Notice verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Now, remember, four months have gone by since Nehemiah received the report that the walls have been broken down. They've been down for 141 years, but it just finally hit him, and he is wrestling with the fact that this has happened, and so he begins to pray, and he has four months here that he is praying and seeking, and we're going to see all kinds of different things. But I, I got to tell you, when God gives you a passionate pursuit, there's normally urgency in you. Like, we got to get to work. We got to go do this. We got to go after this. And yet, Nehemiah is very patient here to wait on the Lord for the right timing to go before the king. But now the four months has gone by, and it's time to get in front of the king. It's time to talk. It's time to come and have a very uncomfortable, awkward conversation with your boss. Now, remember, Nehemiah is a cupbearer, so that means that his job is to eat, drink, and don't die. Eat up, drink up, and don't drop dead. Because if he doesn't drop dead, then the king would say, well, I'll drink that wine, let me have it. I'll drink that food, let me have it. If he drops dead, that was a rival nation that was trying to kill him, the king, and the cupbearer got in the way and spared the life of the king. So that was his job. And it says here, Nehemiah, that he was sad in the presence of the king. Now, given his job, it's not a good thing if you're eating and drinking for the king for you to be sad in front of him. Because he's got to be thinking, did you eat something bad? Is your stomach hurting? What's going on? Should I eat it? Should I not? So this is kind of tense here for the king to be like, what is wrong with you? Now, this is tense, but before we get there, I want you to think with me for a moment about Nehemiah's patience. How many of you would say that you don't wait well? How many of you would say you're not a good waiter? I don't wait well. I feel you, brother. I feel you, sister. I thank God for the grace that He extends in my life for it seems like the little strengths that I have. One of them is not waiting. There's a certain establishment not too far from here that I frequent pretty often for the sake of our kids, and I'm convinced if I could sit down with the boss for just a little bit, I could tweak this operation of how they go about things, and we could get people out the door a lot quicker. I mean, I count people. I, I, I watch process, and my mind is like, Pfft. but you know what I do? I just seek to trust the sovereign hand of our good God, that He's got this operation, but I don't wait well. I don't know about you, but I would say that you probably do a lot of things in your life so you don't have to wait. TSA, pre-check, instant coffee, order food on your app so you can just go in and get it and get out. In fact, one of the Connect Group questions this week is, Talk about ways that you avoid waiting. 
A lot of us, if you look at the money that some of us spend in this room, simply so we don't have to wait. Yeah, I think you'd be surprised how much money you spend so that you don't have to wait. Or a lot of things you go out of the way so you don't have to wait. But Nehemiah waited four months. Four months of waiting. It's very instructive to me. It's very challenging to me. It's very convicting to me. It's worth noting in chapter 5 that it will take him 52 days to rebuild these walls. 52 days. So he actually prays longer than he works. Isn't that amazing? He prays for four months and works for 52 days. There's something instructive to that. Maybe sometimes the reason it takes you so long to do stuff because you won't pray and really get God's vision and God's heart and God's wisdom so that you're, you're working, as I like to say, harder. You're not working smarter. God has given Nehemiah wisdom, so when he and this squad of servants go to work, they, they're going to knock it out. They knocked it out because I just have to believe that God had given him the grace and the wisdom to get his spiritual and physical ducks in a row so that when he went, man, he went, and he knocked this thing out in 52 days. Write this down. Waiting time should not be wasted time. Waiting time should not be wasted time. Because as you wait for your next steps from God, while you're waiting on the job, while you're waiting for your next spouse, while you're waiting for whatever, your aim should be, God, help me get my physical and spiritual ducks in a row. Help me think through this thing. Help me fast about this. Help me really make sure before I get the green light and go that I've got a really good plan, a really good thought process in place. You remember the disciples were told by Jesus, go to Jerusalem and wait. He didn't say, I'm leaving, now go take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, no, go wait for six weeks until the gift of the Father is given to you. Until the Holy Spirit comes, you wait for six months, and you pray in that upper room, and you wait. And when He comes, you will get power from on high, and now you will have power to do the ministry and the task and the will that I've called you to do. So waiting time is very formative. Waiting time is getting your heart right. Waiting time is to, to, to get your strength, to get your legs underneath you, to get ready for the next assignment or the assignment in front of you. It, it, it's like the book of Isaiah says that he renews our strength to soar like the eagles. It's during that waiting time that you get power from mission. See, believing God's sovereignty is not a reason to be passive. If God has put something on your heart to do, hear me, if God has put something on your heart to do, you need to make sure that right now you're doing everything you know that He's called you to do while you're waiting for Him to do what only He can do. Let me say that again. To wait on the Lord does not mean you sit back and do nothing. To wait on the Lord means you're faithful and you're a good steward of what you know He's told you to do while you're waiting for Him to open doors, soften hearts, do what only He can do. So if God has put you in a waiting season, maximize it. Use it. Don't waste it. Waiting time is not wasted time. Watch this. Waiting time is preparation time. In fact, we'll see when you go out to start this assignment if you waited well, because the waiting well will help you finish well. Some don't finish well because they never had a season of waiting well. And this brother right here, man, he waited 
on the Lord. Now notice too, and the king said to me, why is your face sad? I mean, are you sick? I mean, is it a girl? What is it? Is the girl broke your heart or what, 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 what? And, and he concludes, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then notice, I was very much afraid. I love Nehemiah's honesty, don't you? You have to realize these kings were nuts, okay? These kings were crazy. These guys were like nuts. They had no problem wasting bodies, if you know what I mean. If he goes to this king, this king could say, okay, you want to leave your job. I'm going to have to find another cupbearer so I don't get killed from all these rival nations so you can go rebuild the city that I gave a decree that should have been torn down and you want me to just let you go do that? You ungrateful little servant. How dare you? Notice I said to the king, look at three, long live the king. See what he's saying? King, we're good. Sir, I'm a fan of you, sir. Whatever I'm about to ask you, long live the king. I'm very in favor of you, sir. Very diplomatic. See, Nehemiah is bold, but let me tell you something. He's also wise. Very delicate diplomatic words here. He's not kicking over the beehive to get the honey. Why should not my face, he says, be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, it lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, notice Nehemiah appeals to graves. Now, Nehemiah is not a funeral director, right? Nehemiah is not an undertaker. Nehemiah is appealing to the graves. You know why? Because he's smart. Persians had a really soft place in their heart for their dead ancestors. Persian kings felt a great responsibility as the king of these nations to make sure that the dead were honored. Nehemiah knows that. So he's playing at the heartstrings of the king by saying, I want to go and check on the graves in Jerusalem. I want to go because... My, my, the, my, it's in ruins. And notice the king said to me, what are you requesting? So here's the big moment, right? Four months of anticipation, all this prayer. You ever have one of these conversations that you knew had to happen? Ever have one of those? It had to happen. I don't really want to do it. I don't know how it's going to go. Ah! This is him. He's a nervous wreck. And I love what he does. This is what godly servants do. Notice, second point, praying praying. So, I prayed to the God of heaven. Notice in the midst of the conversation, I prayed to the God of heaven. Last week, we saw Nehemiah offer again this gargantuous prayer. We would call this a flare prayer. You ever pray flare prayers? This is a beautiful thing about prayer, is it not? Whatever you're doing, you can maintain communion with God. Whenever you're working, when you're driving, when you're sick, when you're eating, when you're playing, on the way to a hard conversation, in the midst of a hard conversation, you can pray. You can pray. There's so many times I'm talking to people out here, can I tell you that? And they're telling me stuff, okay? And in my mind, I'm thinking, Lord, what in the world am I going to say to that? See what I'm doing? I'm listening out here, seeking to understand them, hear them, and at the same time, 
I'm like a duck. You know, you ever seen a duck? They're like gliding on water and they look so smooth, but they're kicking for their life underneath. That's what's going on many times in my life. People are sharing with me. I'm thinking, Lord, I don't, but I'm praying, communing. No matter what you're doing, friend, as you're kicking for your life, pray. Ask God for wisdom in the moment. No doubt he's saying something like, God, help the king have a soft heart. God, help this land on a soft heart. Lord, please don't let me die. Lord, please keep my head. Nehemiah, I want you to notice this, Nehemiah is not trusting in his eloquent delivery. He's not trusting in his persuasive power. Friends, this man is trusting God. And God in His grace meets Nehemiah in the moment in his time of need. And that's how God works. Does he not? You're in the moment. You're in a mess. I don't know what to do. You ask him for grace, and he gives you the right word at the right term in the right way and the right tone, and you walk away, and you're like, what did I even just say? And somehow God intervened in that situation, and now it's actually better than it was, and I never thought it could be. Friends, that was the grace of God intervening in your situation, and that's what he does here. God gives grace for every moment he puts you in. You just got to ask him for it. You got to ask him for it. You got to say, God, give me grace for whatever it is. So waiting, praying, third of all, speaking. We find God's servant here in verse 5, speaking. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now think about this, my friends. Nehemiah's obedience in this little conversation, it changes history. And you may have conversations with people that don't have the amount of implications that this one does. This is a massive conversation. But I want you to be reminded that little situations, I'm sorry, little conversations change situations, change lives. Like, don't underestimate the importance of you having that awkward conversation with that person that you keep avoiding. Don't underestimate how God wants to use you to graciously, like a, like a Nathan and David moment, thou art the man. Don't underestimate how God wants to use that little conversation to change a life. Don't underestimate how God wants to use you to share the gospel with your coworker at the gym, on the running trail, as you take trash out, as your kids are playing at the playground and you're meeting moms and dads and parents, as, as you're at the senior center and you're waiting to go in or waiting to get your food or waiting. God wants to use little conversations that seem little to you, but they're big to God because He wants to use them to have massive, big implications in the recipients of the ones who are, you, are, you are communicating with. Don't underestimate the power of allowing God to use you to have conversation, to depressurize the situation, depressurize the situation. Think about this. Nehemiah is just being faithful to God to share with this king what God has birthed on his heart. And that's how you have awkward conversation, quite honestly, with people, is you do it in that way. You have, you have your opening conversation, and then you say, there's something on my heart that God's put on my heart. Could I, could I share that with you? Sometimes they're going to say no, and you say, okay, and you keep moving. But if they say yes, now you have the green light to be able to share with them, and don't underestimate how God wants to use that for their good. 
I can't tell you how many little conversations people have had with me that I'm a different person standing here today because they did. And let me tell you something. Nehemiah is used by God in this moment, and God wants to use you in, in similar ways. You see the principle. Fourth of all, notice serving. Serving. Waiting, praying, speaking, serving. Notice the king's response, verse 6. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, which was very unusual, by the way. Kings and queens, they weren't seen together in public. They weren't seen together in public. But it's almost as if Nehemiah waited until she came out. Because, you, you know, sometimes to get the husband to move, you, you just got to get to his wife, right? Sometimes all she's got to do is give a look and you say, oh, okay, uh-huh. And, and maybe that's what's going on here. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Nehemiah had favor with this queen. Maybe they had had a conversation somewhere. I mean, they were certainly interfacing all the time. And, and again, this is purely uh, speculation on my part. But God, God doesn't miss the details. And there's a reason that Nehemiah wrote that down, by the way, that the queen is there. So Nehemiah is using everything around him to help this situation go into the affirmative. Notice, and the king said to me, Queen beside him, how long will you be gone? The king says, how long are you going to be gone? And, and when are you coming back? When you will return. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now this shows you two things. Not only is the king going to answer in the affirmative, but Nehemiah was a great worker. Nehemiah was a great servant. By him saying, how long will you be gone? You know what that implies? It implies to me he does not want him to leave. You're a good worker, Nehemiah. I don't want you to leave. You do a very good job. At, you're very good at your job at what you do. See, the way Nehemiah approaches this situation, he's a servant of God, but he's also a servant of the king. He realizes, I'm serving God, but God has put me in this position. This, he's given me this job. He's given me this place to be faithful with. I mean, during these four months, Nehemiah continued to be a faithful cupbearer. That's worth noting here. He doesn't have a mindset, well, hey, my days are numbered. I already got another job anyway. I already know the job, and it's way bigger. I'm going to go build the walls in Jerusalem, way bigger than this pagan king that I'm trying to spare his life. So therefore, my quality of work can go down because I'm leaving anyway. It's not what he does. It's not like what a lot of people do in their jobs. They, all of a sudden, the grass is greener, and their work and their quality of work and the way they go about it, it goes down. For Nehemiah, think about this. He's known for four months, friends, that he's got this big assignment from God, and yet the king says, please don't leave. You're doing such a good job. His quality of work did not go down. He's a servant. He is serving. Again, he is doing what, what he knows God wants him to do until God does what only he can do. See that? That's what waiting on the Lord means. He waited well. Fifth of all, planning. Notice, waiting, praying, speaking, serving, planning. Please remember, prayer and planning are not at odds. A calendar is not ungodly. Let me say that again. A calendar is not ungodly. Did you know God is a planner? Did you know He planned to send Jesus before the foundation of the earth? God is a planner. Now, we make plans, but we know James 4 is true. We should always say, if the Lord wills, we'll do so-and-so and so-and-so. Sometimes Ember and I, we just have what we call planning dates. We get together. I bring all my calendars. She brings her calendar. And we just calendar out, looking ahead. What are we going to eat here? What are we going to do there? How are we going to handle this? 
Planning is a good thing. Jesus said, Luke 14, before someone builds a tower, they should step back and look at it and say, what's it going to take to build? I mean, that's just common sense. You don't just get a hammer and nails and say, we're going to build a tower. Well, how are we going to do it? Well, I don't know. Just get to knocking something together. That's nuts. I don't want to get up on that tower, do you? I want to get up on a tower that's been planned out, thought out, and we've got the squad to accomplish it, and it's good. Else, I'm staying down. Some of us are really good at planning, can I tell you that? Others of us are really good at praying. And vice versa, some of us are not good planners. It makes us itch a little bit to have to plan anything. But we're really great at praying. Other people are great at praying, but they don't plan anything. Some, some, some people are prayer warriors. And man, praise God for you prayer warriors. You, I mean, you're always thinking big, right? Man, God wants me to, I want to address the global lostness. I want to go to the Middle East and rescue the orphans. I want to address clean water, and I want to, you've got these grandiose plans that you're praying, and then we say, well, what's your plan? And you say, well, I don't know. I have no idea. And can I tell you, you're probably never going to do any about what you just said. It all sounded good. It all looked good. But unless you've taken some steps, brother or sister, it will amount to nothing. And years will go by, weeks will go by, months will go by, and you'll say, man, I really want to do something great for God. Now you're in the fourth quarter of your life. You've got maybe just a few years left, and you're like, where did time go? You've got to get some plans in place of what God is birthing on your heart. Some of us, on the other hand, are really good planners. I mean, you've got spreadsheets, you've got clipboards, you've got alarms going off all hours of the day saying when you should do this, when you should do this, but you don't pray a lot just really good at, you're a great planner. You got it down to the T. Or when you pray, all you're praying is for God to bless your plans. You've not spent any time asking God what His plan is, but you got a plan. And so, Nehemiah is really a poster child of how to pray and plan and not make them be in conflict, but actually complement one another. Praying and planning are not an opposition. Praying and planning is not as an opposition. Nehemiah spent months in prayer, and yet when the king says, what do you want, bro? He was ready to deliver. He was ready to execute. He had a purpose, rebuild the walls, had a timetable. And then notice verse 7, he asked for a passport. Notice 7. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, passport, for the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. See, Nehemiah is not just traveling by faith that doesn't work. This is like saying, I'm headed to the Middle East, I'm gonna, I want to go there and I want to do missions, but I'm not going to get a passport. I'm not, going, I'm not going to downtown, I'm not going through, I don't have time for that. i got bigger stuff to do. I'm not getting a passport. But I'm just going to get to the TSA gate and I'm just going to say, God, I just believe in Jesus' name that those TSA guys are just going to say, we're going to make an exception for you. Just go on through. Let me tell you, if you do that, you know what they'll say? Go home, man. Go home. You think you're going to the Middle East without a passport? You're nuts. Go back. Nehemiah is a prayer, but he's practical. When God puts things on your heart to do, it, there's homework that you've got to do. There's steps you've got to put in place. There's degrees you maybe have to get. There's there's classes you may have to take. There's conversations you might have. It's not just all going to happen before you. The desire is there, but now you've got to pray, and now you've got to plan. Notice verse 8, and a letter to Asaph. I mean, he knows where the lumber yard is, for crying out loud. 
Notice, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that's the lumberyard, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of this city. I mean, Nehemiah is not a lumberjack. He's a cupbearer. How does he have these connections? How does he know where the king's forest is? How does he know all of that? Well, he's done his homework. For four months, he's been planning, he's been timetabling, he's had goals, he's thinking through it, he's writing it down. I mean, imagine him getting to Asaph here. He's the, he's the lead guy out in the yard, you know, when you go pick up your lumber, that guy says, show me your ticket, you know, you've been there before. And he's that guy, and Asaph comes to him, and he goes, you know, get ready to check out, and Asaph's like, where, 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 who are you? How are you going to pay for all this? And you know what Nehemiah says? I got the king's credit card. Just put it on his tab. I got Artaxerxes. I mean, the crazy thing, friends, about Ezra and Nehemiah is these Persian kings did not only grant permission for this stuff to be rebuilt, they actually funded it. They funded it. God used pagan dollars to get these walls built. It's amazing. And notice, not only that, Nehemiah says, i got to live somewhere while this is going on. I can't just sleep out in the desert. Notice, and for the house that I shall occupy. Again, it's not me just living on faith and, well, I don't know what we're going to do. We'll get there and God will do something. No, he said, I need a house. I need somewhere to live. To think that planning is in opposition to praying, watch this, is presumption. Nehemiah says, i got to live somewhere. He's both godly and he's practical. That's what made Nehemiah such a great leader. He's godly and practical. Sixth of all, notice praising, verse 8b. And look what happens. And the king granted me what I asked. <sighs> notice the first thing he does. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Notice Nehemiah doesn't say, man, he, he, he doesn't say, I put all this stuff together. This is all on me. I figured all this out. It was, it was my speech. It was this. It was that. No. He says, the reason all this happened is God had his hand on me. His hand was upon me. So notice, Nehemiah, you should write this down, is not primarily biographical. It's doxological. Doxology is praise. This is not just biographical. This is doxological. The reason the Holy Spirit had Nehemiah write this down is because it brought glory to God because God in this whole episode is working out the eternal counsel of His will so that one day Jesus the Messiah could be born a Jew and so on and so on and so forth. One of the things I love about Nehemiah is there are no miracles. Let me say that again. One thing I love about Nehemiah is there are no miracles. Now, I love miracles. Anybody else? I love miracles. But there's no burning bushes, there's no walking on water, there's no suspending the laws of nature. Ezra and Nehemiah is about the quiet, sovereign hand of God working. We should never conclude that the lack of the supernatural means God is not at work. Hello. You should never conclude because the supernatural is not in front of me that my God is not working. Friend, God is always working. He is always unleashing His plan. Don't let the lack of the sensational make you think that God is inactive. Now, another conclusion that you should make is, if you have opposition from people, then God must not be in it. That would be a wrong conclusion. 
It would be wrong to think that everything's going to go just really peachy and smooth. And there's going to be no op- there's going to be a lot of opposition. And you know what a finally a godly servant must do? Persevering. Persevering. A godly servant will persevere when God has put something on their heart, even when they get much opposition. Notice 9, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. So I got my passport. Now the king had sent me with officers. He's got an entourage. Notice that. He's got an entourage of, of going before him. But when, verse 10, Sambalat, the Horonite, that's the governor of Samaria. That's to the north of Jerusalem. And Tobiah the Ammonite, that's the leader of the Ammonites. That's on the east side, of so the north and the, the east. And in a moment, we're going to see Geshem. He's on the southern side. So all of these rival kings do not want these walls rebuilt. We won't go into why totally. But notice, when, when uh, Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. Then I arose in the night. And I had a few men with me, and I told, them, I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. So again, he's, he's being incognitos here. He's riding very quietly. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. I went, verse 13, to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and notice, to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Notice what a good leader does. Nehemiah had been told this was the case, but he needed to go see it with his own eyes. That's what a good leader does. A leader does not deal with assumption. A Nehemiah, have made, does, uh, uh, if he's able to, will always go assess the situation. Notice 14, then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. I mean, again, isn't there a part of you that's like, if God were in this, my animal could go too? It's not where he's at. It's not where he's at. He's so committed that he knows that God is in this, that even the hardship that comes, I'm just going to keep going. Got to leave the animal? Got to leave the animal. Bye. Then I went to the fountain gate, 15. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing and had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were going to do this work. So he's been in Jerusalem for three days. He had been traveling from from the Persian palace nine to ten miles a day on his animal Take a break, next day, take a break, next day, take a break. Very strenuous. Then notice 17. Then I said to them, he says, this is to Tobiah and Sanballat, you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Now, remember the brokenness of the city is reflecting upon the name and the reputation of God. Nehemiah takes serious that his, his God... And his reputation is at stake because these walls and people walk by and say, ha ha, there's the old city of Yahweh and look what happened. He takes it personally. Notice 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me and they said, let's get to work. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now, next week in chapter 3, it's like a Jerusalem phone book, Okay. We're going to read so many names next week that you should thank God you don't have to read, okay? I'm going to read those. All right? There's a lot of names. And this is the squad. This is Nehemiah's squad. 
This is the troops that are forming. The squad's coming together. Now, I want, you, I want to remind you from this that everybody has a part in Jesus building a church. Everybody, everybody that's on the squad has a part of doing their job. You may not be the leader of the particular situation, but you got a part, and you need to play it well. And this Jerusalem phone book, they're, they're going to do their job. Nehemiah's going to rally the troops, and they're going to build this wall. Notice 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab that's south of Jerusalem heard of it, they jeered at us. They wagged their tongue. They despised us. And they said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, watch this, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we are his servants. We will arise and build, but you have no portion or right to claim in Jerusalem. You know what Nehemiah says? Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for your comments. We're about to build a wall. And we are the servants of God. And he has put this on our heart. And we are, this thing's going up, whether you like it or not. But notice Nehemiah's motivation. He's trusting God. A servant of God, watch this, finds strength from God when opposition comes from people that are against God. Jesus told us as we seek to do his will, many will persecute us. Anytime we're seeking to advance the kingdom of God, the Tobias, the Sambalats, and the, the Geshems will show up. In fact, I would tell you if they don't show up, it's almost not a good thing. Because anytime the kingdom of God is advancing, the kingdom of darkness is going to push back. And so, don't be shocked when they show up. A lot of us are shocked. Oh, I thought this was... Uh, no, don't be shocked. They're showing up. They're coming, okay? They're coming. Tobias, Sambalat, they're coming. Geshem, he's coming. They're going to poke holes in it. They're going to say, I, can't, I wouldn't do it that way. At the last church, we did it this way. It didn't work here. They're going to do all that. Just expect it. Expect it. But keep trusting your God. Now, as we close here, the narrative of, of this servant will give way to a better servant in many years from this time, another servant will ride into Jerusalem, will he not? And he will also be on the back of an animal, a colt. The servant of all servants is the Lord Jesus Christ. As important as Nehemiah's work was in Jerusalem, it pales in comparison to the work that Jesus will do in Jerusalem. Jesus will lay his life down as a ransom for many so that you and I could be right with God, one with God, that we could have life, that we could have it abundantly. See, watch this, friends. Jesus did not come to build a wall. Jesus came to build his church. Jesus faced a lot of mockery, a lot of opposition. He certainly had his Sambalats. He certainly had his Tobias. He certainly had his Geshems. But he had entrusted himself to the Father's will. He lived under the power of the Holy Spirit. And watch this, because Jesus finished the job the good hand of our God is upon us. In Christ Jesus, God's favor is on you. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, God's favor is on you. The good hand of God is on you because Jesus finished the work in your place. And so in Christ Jesus, we're waiting. In Christ Jesus, we're praying. In Christ Jesus, we're speaking. In Christ Jesus, we're serving. In Christ Jesus, we're planning. In Christ Jesus, we're praising. And in Christ Jesus, we are persevering. So as we look to Nehemiah and we say, that's a great servant. 
We look away from Nehemiah, and we look to Jesus, and we say he's an even better servant. And in him, we have the power to accomplish the assignment that God has given us. From this text, friend, may God raise up in you a gratitude for your Savior. A gratitude that God's good hand is on you. As you seek and we seek to accomplish the good work that you've been called to do, and we here at Pleasant Valley Church have been called to do for such a time as this. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. Very, very, very instructive portion of Scripture. We are gleeful that because we are in Jesus, your good hand is upon us. We testify right now, God, to your greatness, as we've already done in singing, to your grace. We humble ourselves before you, God, as your servants. We're like Nehemiah and his squad. We are your servants. We ask that you would strengthen our hands, God, for the good work that you have called us to do, so that when others see us laboring in the kingdom, they wouldn't heap praise on us. They would say, that's not natural. That's not natural for a man or a woman to do that, to handle themselves that way, to respond that way, to have the grace that way, to be patient that way. That is not natural. And Lord, that many people would glorify our Father in heaven because of the good work that you're doing through our hands. Lord, help us not discredit the fact that you want to use our hands. You want to strengthen our hands. We are just normal guys and gals living in 2023, seeking to advance the kingdom of God on earth with the, with the global church and other local churches in Northeast Ohio. And God, we pray that you would help us keep the main thing the main thing. Thank you, Jesus, that you told us that as you build your church, the gates of hell will not prevail. Oh, yes, we will have our Sambalats. We will have our Tobias. We will have our Geshems. But we thank you that in Jesus, the victory is ours. So much so that we can love those who hurt us. We can bless those who persecute us, and we can pray for our enemies, and we can keep moving forward knowing that you've called us to this. So thank you for the good gospel that you've entrusted to us. Thank you that you love to save sinners. And I pray if there is one here this morning or watching online who's never called upon the name of the Lord and been saved, that they would realize today that they are a sinner in your hands. And yet, God, you have made a way in your grace to save them. You've demonstrated your love to save them. Before we sing this song, just with your heads bowed and eyes closed there, this morning, if you say, Jordan, I'm, I'm in the middle of the work God has called me to do. I'm in a waiting season. I'm in a planning season. I'm in a trying to be faithful where I'm at season. And and, and I'm tired, and, and I know God's called me to this, but I'm tired, and I, I need His strength. I need His grace. Would you just lift your hand up right now? Would you just be, just be honest with me? I just want to pray for you. Just say, I'm tired right now in the work. I'm tired, weary, don't know what to do. I know what, I know what I'm called to do, but I'm not sure how to do it. God, would you see these hands that went up? These are your servants. They are seeking to love you and follow you. 
So I praise you, God. I praise you that you're going to strengthen their hands this week. You're going to give them wisdom on the next step that they need to take. And I pray again for us as a body, Lord, as we seek to move forward, loving you, loving one another, and reaching the world, that we would truly manifest that your grace is sufficient. We ask it in Jesus' name. As you stand to your feet, let's sing this song. Let's sing this together in response. Church, love you more than you know. Love you more than you know. Stand to your feet. Let's sing.